So welcome everybody. My name is Ember Kelly. I am the Director of Religious Education at the Fourth Universalist Society in the city of New York. Uh, and I am so excited to be a part of this event. Uh, as that uh, first slide showed, uh, we have a lot of collaboration going on tonight. This is a both a culmination and a beginning. Uh, this culmination of a lot of effort and a lot of uh, coordinating of various partners. Specifically, uh, we started as a working group with Fourth U Universalist Society, the Unitarian Universalist Ministry for Earth, as well as the New York U Just for Justice. Uh, and we brought us together in a group of uh, working on collaboration for education around climate issues. Uh, and I'm just so excited that the work that we have put in this summer uh, will now culminate in these four uh, panels that are happening both on the first Tuesday of every, um, every month from October, November, December, and January, uh, and likely even more collaboration going forward there because we believe that to confront the climate crisis, that collaboration is the path forward, that that is the muscle that we as UUs need to build for uh, organizing against climate change. Note. I would like to pass on to our gathering prayer from the Reverend Jovan Rue. Hey, beloveds. It is so good to be with you this evening. Please join with me in the spirit of prayer or meditation. Spirit of life, God and goddesses of all names, and yet no name at all. We come to you in search of a better way, a better path for our home, a better connection for our society. Stay with us as we consider the ways in which we have shaped this planet. Remind us that though we have done harm, there is still time to change our ways. Stay with us as we mourn that which we can never recover and remind us to continue to have fake, faith like a mustard seed that we will learn new ways. Speak to us in ways that are urgent. Listen to us as we pray for strength. Spirit of change, Keep us always focused on the goal ahead, looking toward the future. Spirit of resilience, ignite us with the courage of our ancestors and of our living tradition. Remind us that we are not alone in this work. Spirit of connection, keep us always grounded in the interconnectedness of this work and the intersection with the planet and all beings upon it. Spirit of never-ending hope. Help us to keep our minds and hearts open to new ideas and new perspectives as we do this work. Keep us humble, always listening to those who know what is needed, and remind us that we do not always need to be the ones in charge. May we move in the spirit of love. May we move in the spirit of justice. May we move with courage today as we begin this particular journey together. Blessed be. Shalom and amen. Thank you so much for that beautiful opening prayer. I really, I, I just felt that, that call to the spirit of connection, that beckoning that really, I think, speaks to the work that we all try to do, that we all feel called to do. And, and just thank you for naming and anchoring that as we begin our conversation tonight. Um, I have such an honor and a delight to hold space for two amazing individuals in our, in our movement and in the broader work for climate justice, and that is Solomon Yo, who is the one of the leaders, one of the lead organizers with Pacific Island students fighting climate change. And in a moment before the panel kicks off, we're going to play a short video clip on some of the advocacy work of this amazing organization. And then also we are so honored to have from the UU Service Committee, Salote Soko, who does so much uh, to manifest our values in different contexts around the world and really push us as a faith movement and to think internationally about how to build capacity, build relationship, build strength to really embody the values that we hold so dear. Um, it is a pleasure to be with you tonight. And first, we will watch a short clip uh, from the advocacy work of Pacific Island students fighting climate change, and then we'll move into our discussion. In every year of the last decade, our world has seen greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise and shatter records. But those responsible for burning the most fossil fuels have not experienced the most direct consequences of climate change. It has been us. 
the hundreds of millions of people living on the front line of the climate crisis. If global temperatures rise above 1.5 degrees Celsius in my lifetime, countries like mine will vanish beneath the waves. I will be forced to leave the land where my ancestors are buried and to tell my children they have nowhere to call home. At Rio de Janeiro, Kyoto, and later at Paris, we were promised action. But despite ever more opportunities to address this crisis, the planet is hurtling towards climate catastrophe. Existing international agreements have not provided countries with legal clarity on their responsibilities to reduce emissions, leading to inaction. To break the impasse, the UN General Assembly must request an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice on Climate Change and Human Rights. All it would take is a simple majority vote from UN member states. An advisory opinion is not legally binding, but carries great legal and moral authority, encouraging all nations to protect the human rights of people affected by climate change. An opinion from the highest court in the world would also help to build a critical global coalition uniting governments and international institutions, and would define exactly what existing bodies of laws nations should follow. In the past, advisory opinions have been instrumental in establishing international laws on the right to self-determination, the prevention of genocide and nuclear disarmament. We believe it could do the same for climate change. A planet in crisis doesn't have to be our future. If there is power in the world to save humanity from environmental disaster, it is the power of the people. The time is running out and we have to act now. Please visit our website to join us. Thank you. And I am so excited to hold space for two very powerful, very thoughtful leaders, Salote and Solomon. And first, uh, after watching that, seeing the images, which are so powerful, hearing about the story, this, this request for legal representation that, that asks and demands and has the force of law to hold countries to live in a different way. I want to give space for both of you just to introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about your role in the climate movement, and then we'll have a few more particular questions. But first, introduce yourselves to our community gathered here and those watching later online. Uh, first, I invite Solomon and then Salote. Solomon. Good fellow morning, good fellow evening, everyone, or morning, wherever you are in this world today. Uh, my name is Solomon Yo. I am the campaign director of the Pacific Island Student Party Climate Change. I am from this uh, South Pacific country known as the Solomon Islands. Um, uh, far, so far from where I am right now, but still here present with you all today. Um, I am the, I've been working on this campaign to seeking advice opinion. Uh, since 2019, where I was a final year law student, and of course, still hoping to see that this campaign goes to uh, achieve its final end. Um, yep, so I am now based here in New York, working alongside my civil society friends, um, including um, UUSC, as well as the, the governments from the Pacifics who will be taking this, um, this campaign through the United, United Nations in uh, hoping to seek um, a pass a United Nations uh, resolution to request an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. So yes, working here on the on the ground on the campaign as well as in in all other spaces as well to just to get this through. Thank you. Um, Bolivinaka, everyone. My name is Salote Songo, and um, I live here in Uxbridge, uh, in Massachusetts. Um, on the indigenous lands of the Potucket Indians. Um, I am also from a Pacific Island, from Fiji. I um, migrated to the US in 2010. So I've been here for just a little bit over a decade. I'm still learning about the country and um, the, the systems that uh, are within the United States. Um, I'm, I started my, my, I would say work and my activism on climate justice um, when I was still in high school in Fiji. 
Um, I think growing up you in, in the Pacific Island where you're surrounded by water and nature, uh, it's hard not to, to, um, not to feel um, threatened when you see your home being destroyed. Um, and I'm so very fortunate to be uh, working with UU Service Committee as the Director of Advocacy to bring our partners' voices to powers, to spaces with power so that we can seek justice and remedy for the deterioration of our planet and for justice for the communities that we live amongst with. Um, I'm so grateful to Reverend Daniel for inviting me here and to be joining my brother Solomon um, and to share some of our experiences with you all. Thank you. Um, one question I wanted to ask as we're, we're just kind of getting grounded in this, so we're thinking about the, the international movement for climate justice, and there's so much that is difficult about this moment, but I'm curious what has been inspiring to you, whether it's a particular types of partnerships or relationships or work that you're doing, what has been an inspiration for your work for global climate justice? Uh, well, perhaps I can start now. <laughs> um, I think young people inspire me a great deal. Um, UUSC's work is modeled on an eye-to-eye -eye partnership. So we partner uh, collaboratively um, and equitably with the communities um, in the Pacific, such as those that um, Solomon also works with. Um, and around the world to seek justice. Um, and there are times when um, the systems are, are, are so against us, but being in partnership with communities, you not only get to um, experience um, their wisdom and, and, and um, their knowledge and, and their direct experiences, but you also get to wish to experience their soul and, and their just heartfelt um, gun go uh spirit uh to never give up um they always remind us at the end of the day what's most at stake and that is the lives of of their people their communities and their future generations those that are yet to be born um and that that fuels me um more than abundantly um and to see these climate movements all around the world being led by young people as a young mother i i i, I truly truly am inspired. I, I get hope from seeing Solomon and the Pacific Island students fighting for climate change take this issue to the highest court, uh, because I know that my son will have a better chance of fighting. Um, and so that that gives me energy and inspiration. Solomon, what brings inspiration for you? Of course, um, it is a lot of things that I can say that has been a lot of inspiration to my life as well as in this in this journey but um and echoing a lot of things that some of this said is um really um I, I don't know for the rest of the people audience watching but to me it, it is too deep i can relate to to a deeper level given that that is somehow some of the foundations of why people in the pacific are really taking on you know these great campaigns not just in the icgo campaign but numerous other initiatives um, but <clears throat> for me, it's really, I mean, I just got here in June to New York to support my government as well as to further the campaign. But, you know, growing up in the Pacific as well as returning from university with a more uh, understanding about how climate change um, is caused and as well as how it's impacting people on the ground. To me, going back, it's not about to see that, uh, you know, oftentimes people in the Pacific have been called like our victims. There's always been victims crying out. Uh, big crybabies to the rest of the world saying that we are always impacted by climate change, uh, putting out their hands out, give us more money so that we can, you know, survive. But I see a different picture. And I believe that, that first of all, that, uh, that perspective is, is wrong in its entirety. Because Pacific Islanders, ever since before um, people in the global West has been calling themselves civilized Pacific Island countries and uh, Pacific Island people having, you know, joining vast distances of water just in their traditional canoes, um, going and staying in islands that are really hostile in an environment, but still continue to adapt and resilient towards whatever forces against of nature. And even with man, with the introduction of colonial, colonial, colonialization, as well as the, 
the, the influence of the global West into the continuing to disrupting the um, uh, society of the Pacific back in the days until now. I think one thing to really highlight is the people's resilience and uh, the, the level of effort that they want to do to adapt and willingness to fight, you know, for what they really truly value, as Salvatore has highlighted. So it comes simply to the sense of like, um, whenever we see a problem that is happening, like uh, sea level rise eroding our coastal lines, people really want to do something, going and throwing stones and doing whatever they can, though, in the capacity, of course, to really advocate uh, in in a, in a essence of practice to try to um, to stop the further deterioration of their land and trying to do whatever they can really to adapt in these places. I remember um, there was a uh, there was the first climate justice summit that we held in Solomon Islands. There was a lady who was uh, she we 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 started to open up the, the the network of civil society to more you know people in the communities. You know, all this time we've been engaging with civil society governments, but never with the communities. But to be fair, it's the communities who are suffering the worst cases of climate impacts in the Pacific in the Solomon Islands, this is very evident. So bringing on this community and this, this woman, I believe, I recall, she was, you know, doing her best. It was like 9, 9 p.m. in the night. She was going around doing the decorations, putting the floor mats and everything and doing all sorts of work that, you know, uh, should be, you know, like shared with, uh, equally between all the organizers. Well, as organizers, we, feel, we felt a bit of shame, like, why are we not doing enough? And this lady came out of nowhere and started doing all this work. And we are, I got the courage and walk up to them like, hey, you don't really have to do this. Uh, we are, we are somehow we got compensated to you know do all this organizing. Why are you doing this? So like, Solomon, my, my, my village is going, are facing a lot of intense pressure from climate justice. I don't have the knowledge like you, who are privileged, who went to a university. I don't have the, um, I don't have the the resources like you to you know pay for my demise, the demise of a communities. But what I can do is what I'm doing right now to ensure that whatever is ongoing, whatever you guys are selling or whatever guys you guys are preparing to educate more people about the impacts of climate change. And hopefully that will inform the policies and you guys will take it forward in the international space to advocate for our voices. That is what I would like to support and whatever I can in my capacity and my, and my skills I have, this is what I'm doing. And that level of um, dedication and commitment and the willingness, as uh, Salote has highlighted, to fight really for uh, what they treasure most in the Solomon Islands. And I'm sure many people in the Pacific and I believe rest of uh, elsewhere in the world also feel the same uh, for their land and, the, and their people. I think that's, that's, that level of resilience is something that really, really inspires me. And of course, we are now talking about climate change back in the back in the Pacific, there was a huge war declared on the, the transportation and use and testing of nuclear weapons back in the 90s, 80s, 70s, back in the days, Pacific Islands has been, have been, although you, you can understand this, we're very a small geographical size, but continue to break the discourse and really shaping the walls in a shaping the world's perspective by saying that, look, we might be small, but we, we're not small. We, you're only counting the landmass, but if you count us with the oceans, which is an integral part of us, we are a massive, massive, massive um, countries in a sense. And of course, uh, continuing the, uh, the duty and obligation, because they're not only doing it for themselves, for the injustice of today, because these are of course, um, intergenerational issues, such as the issue of nuclear weapons and testing. So this carried forward to the for, to the future. So they did their part. They played their duty and obligation to ensure that young people like me and of course that the future would have a better chance of living against a serious threat against nuclear weapons. We could end all of humanity. So they did their part to resist. Now, looking back at that, I was like, what am I doing as a student, you know, going around and partying and all just uh, skipping classes? Um, I feel ashamed when I come to realization of this. It's like, look, this is a time where I too must play my obligation, duty and obligation to the future generations as the biggest problem of the time will then really affect the, their future. So hence, you know, we have to do this. I'll be so inspired by this to continue this, this history, which in the Pacific is not linear going forward, but in circular in each generation informing the other, the future generation, the past, vice versa. And of course, there's bravery of small island states that people always say that small island state. No, 
we're always big island, big ocean sustainable states. So, you know, breaking that discourse is something that we live as a living experts to this so many issues relating to nuclear weapons, or is it uh, climate change? And I'm sure there's more issues that will uh, will be confronted by in the future. Thank you. That's powerful. This is Salote. So as I'm hearing what Solomon's talking about, the power of resilient communities, the, the strength of, of sustainable ocean, large, large states. How does UU Service Committee, if you could talk to us a little bit about like UU Service Committee, how do you decide in this world of so many aches, particularly on climate justice, what leads you to invest in organizations like Pacific Island students? How do you make a decision on who to partner with to, and, and, and what's the strategy on climate response? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, it's it's part analysis, part listening, um, and part you know living into our identity uh, as a service committee. Um, when we um, the, our strategy to address climate justice was developed in 2010. I folks remember you know there was a big climate march in New York City, the biggest one ever. Um, it was after the Paris Agreement. Um, it was um, you know, right after this, this thrust of, of activities globally um, um, that marked sort of a, 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 tra a trajectory or a momentum um, around climate action. But at the same time, um, you know, we started seeing the effects of um, severe hurricanes, the disasters that were happening not only in the United States, but around the world. And so the UU Service Committee had um, decided that it was, it was definitely a responsibility for us to take on. We can't just you know, work on human rights issues around the world without tackling this issue that was happening to all of us. It was a planetary uh, disaster. Um, and we knew from, from history, from even our existing partners who were facing um, you know, significant issues or uh, violations to the human right to water or facing genocide and, and um, violence in other parts of the world, that what was happening to their environment, to the planet was also exacerbating the human rights issues that they were facing. So um, that was the, the, I think the best decision the, that the US Service Committee made was looking into this issue of climate justice um, and we knew we were small. We were a small human rights organization. We were based here in the US um, and based on um, you know, how the resources that we have, we could only support um, a particular issue, not a lot. You know, we, we, we understood you know, as the theme of this event here tonight, the collaboration is the key. So we started looking at areas in international law um, that were missing. Uh, particularly in protecting the rights of people who were affected by the climate crisis. And this, this, this gap was jarring, the protection of the rights of people who had been displaced by climate change. Um, so that was why we narrowed in and honed in on this issue of creating um, uh, or developing international law that protects the rights of people who are displaced both internally in their jurisdictions and also uh, beyond, you know, country to country displacement. Um, and then we we started looking at the issue. At that time, there was a, there was a lot of media talk, and a lot of um, I would say, you know, behind the, the the policy discussions about the issue. But then we looked closely, and then we realized that wait a minute, the people that are informing this issue are not the people that are most affected. And that is what UUSC is all about. We partner with those who are most, who are facing this oppression, direct oppression. And so we started looking around the world. We wanted to, to make sure that we were including communities that had been you know, advocating about this issue long before uh, we caught on to it. Um, and of course the Pacific came up. Um, if you go back and you know, do research, you'll see that there's a lot of articles and headlines out there about first climate refugees in Papua New Guinea or somewhere in, in, in Australia, in the Taurus Island, uh, which is very close to Papua New Guinea as well. But you will see the Pacific coming up. And then you look at the record of the Pacific as they go into the, the annual COPs, 
the conference of the parties and you and you hear that you know they've been talking about this issue since before the UNFCCC even began um, and so it was clear to us that in order to make a difference um, and to really live out our values we needed to um, support those on the front lines of this issue and those were the communities in the Pacific who had been displaced who had been advocating for the right for the need for for legal protection for the rights of people who are facing displacement um, and that's sort of how we, we we you know honed in on the Pacific Islands but then we looked within the United States we found that communities in Alaska had also been talking about this issue even before, um, you know, even before the folks in the Pacific, they had been um, experiencing melting ice, permafrost loss for decades um, and complaining to the federal government to do something about it. And to this day, nothing has been done. Um, but then when we, we started doing our analysis and, and listening to the tribes and the, and the indigenous communities that we had started to reach out to, we, we found that they had already been talking to each other. And that was powerful for us. That was, that was the most powerful thing that I think really that we leveraged and, and we understood. They understood the strategy before we even did. They understood the, the power of connecting with each other, uh, the, the, the intersectionality of the issues that they were experiencing, even though they were, were in completely different parts of the world in completely different environments, even opposite environments, they knew how important it was uh, to start advocating about the issue and to start uh, talking about it and, and uh, amplifying their message. So um, we, we listened to their stories. Um, we, we understood um, you know, the, the reason for doing this and, and that aligned with UUSD's values. Um, in advancing protection for those that are displaced, um, in listening to those on the front lines and following their lead. Um, and, you know, when we looked at, because UU Service Committee, we provide grants to, to, to communities who are most impacted. Now grants are not big, they're small. And uh, we decided to, um, you know, invest in this issue because within even the philanthropic movement in the philanthropic center, there wasn't any single dollar that was being allocated to protect the rights of people who are being displaced. So that was also a clear gap for us. Um, we knew that our, we had to support our partners to do the advocacy, even though they had been doing this for, for many, many, many years, they needed support. And we decided to leverage our privilege. We have access to the United Nations. We have access to the US government to use our voice uh, to be able to, to call on them for, for their failure to protect these indigenous tribes who, by the way, have experienced um, many, many, many years of, of, of um, racist policies, of uh, discriminatory policies that have already marginalized most of their communities as, as Solomon had mentioned. Um, and so, um, why we, we landed on this strategy and why we're supporting communities and, and groups like, like Solomon's is, is, you know, that is the basis of, of why we do this. Um, we're also, I think we've, you know, we've, we've spent, we just spent the first, you know, initial years of our strategy just listening and developing trusting relationships with our partners. And through that experience, we, you know, in some organizations, you, you, you tend to focus on the issue um, and, you know, just hammering it in. But what we found is that our partners, are, they're, they're beautiful. <laughs> they're, they're frustrated, they're exhausted, and they're never going to give up. But their ways of imagining and reimagining a future and a world that we want to live in is beautiful. And so I think supporting Solomon's um, ICJ campaign, I mean, the Pacific Island Students campaign uh, for the IC, ICJ is, is part of, of that work of, of reimagining what a, a future would look like and putting resources there um, while also, you know, making sure that we call out um, governments and, 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 um, and, and practices that are, that are not sustainable 
Um, but it's it's a it's a shift in in the way that we um, look at the issue. Um, but also we're you know empowered through our partners to invest in 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 justice, which is you know mm. love in practice, um, and that's what most of our partners do. I love that love in practice. As as you're talking about the campaign that Solomon's, and it was actually an unplanned but beautiful segue. I I was curious, Solomon, if you could talk. We we we've seen the the video introduction. Some individuals may have already looked at the website, but not everyone. And if you could talk a little bit about the status of the the campaign, you've been in New York for a few months on this work. The General Assembly is is key to this. If you could talk a little bit about the the campaign that you're involved with right now. Thank you to Mr. Daniel and Salute for sharing all of that. Before I, I move into the campaign, I can share a little bit my feedback to what Salute has highlighted, and then I'll segue into the campaign. So I think it's really true because, you know, before what we call the Greta Thunberg effect happened, there was so long that indigenous people and people of color in the, in the especially most like mostly in the global south have been calling out for the issue of climate injustice and environmental injustice. In 2006, uh, you can see Inuit people from um, um, Alaska also calling up, brought in a petition to highlight that climate change is an, it's a direct violation of human rights by, uh, to the human rights, to the basic human rights. And I'm sure you can already spell out what are the, some of the examples, but um, such an obvious thing was thrown out of the uh, tribunal saying that there's lack of evidence, but that was in 2006. And then going to the Pacific, you have uh, Tony DeBroom, who was the former president of uh, Marshall Islands. God bless his soul. Um, he has seen the worst, worst, this person has seen the worst of what humanity can do to, an, to another, uh, uh, what a race can do to another race, or the worst, the worst of humanity uh, in terms of colonialism in the, in the Pacific, in terms of nuclear testing to his own people, and also having to see the aftermath of both colonialism and the nuclear testing and thought, thinking that that would be the end of it. But then he's seen climate change and it's impacting his people uh, day in, day out. And also going at a very old age, thinking, of course, concerned about his, um, his, the future generation, not about his own kids, but for the entire country as president. And def therefore taking forward this campaign on a new scale and advocating for the international affairs. Did anyone listen to us back back then? Nobody listened to the Pacific. Nobody listened to this indigenous people. Nobody listened to the global south in, in genuinity until we can see that these impacts are now coming and more visible in the global north. It's very biblical, I would say, but still, these things are, are needed to be needed to be acknowledged. Of course, um, hence we should address it now so that we doesn't cause further damages and more suffering to the people, to our own human 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 race. And coming to really appreciate uh, Salote because um, in island community, is that um, what Salote is doing through the USC is really coming to the people and really uh, giving them and acknowledging the level of trust that people in the Pacific are doing, identifying those people who really want to do something about their, uh, about climate change and other injustices in the Pacific but lacking that resources, that initial resources. And as you said, it's not a lot, but with that little amount of resources, look what we're trying, look what we have, a, we're, we're doing right now in the world. We're going to influence international, uh, international law in its entirety and how this can, once being achieved, it will influence every citizens around the world. So with that little, little, in, uh, little in, uh, investment, see what that happened. And also at, at the end of the day, Salute understands very well how people in the Pacific are. And example, does any one of you know how the, the smell of burnt bamboo is like in the Pacific mornings or how Dalo tastes as well? Do you know what Dalo is? <laughs> or episodes of cyclones, um, droughts, flooding in the Pacific, how people have to live through that and as well um, try to rebuild better from that, those episodes and, you know, this is something that we genuinely care, because um, in the Pacific people genuinely cares um, about their people, and, but they really want to support them, but they can't. And having these little little uh, nuggets of support is really much appreciated. I 
before coming to the States, I went to do my medical. Of course, I have to go through this uh, gazillion um, uh, requirements to get to the States. Of course, a Pacific Islander person coming into the States is quite tough. But I met with a person named David Bossetto and he works with Ecological Solutions. And he just tell me that about like, oh, I heard that USC is also funding you. And he's like, yeah, they're funding us. And he's telling me about the water tanks that they're doing in the community in the Pacific. And to me, it was like quite great because Solomon Islands, you can imagine the lush island nations, but we are for three UPR, Universal Periodic Review in the United Nations, we are identified as a country that is facing great immense water crisis. And you know, these tanks, they, even though it's one tank, how big it is, it plays a huge role, especially um, to women, women's lives in the community who have to you know, go out each day and perform day-to-day -day activities as uh, still yet Solomon Islands is a very patriarchal society. Women have to do all the house chores, things like that. It makes a huge difference. So really appreciating all of this as a person in the Pacific in these spaces to be able to, to give all, all of that empathy and understanding towards each other. So yes, they, um, just just to highlight that. But then um, the question is being about the campaign of the ICU campaign. So I would like to take you all back to 2019, where I was a final year law student alongside with my colleagues, 26 other law students. Um, it's a final year, of course. We want to do something big. Um, that's, that's surprisingly, we always know about climate change in the sense that it is very environmental, it's very political, it's very scientific, very technical. But then for the first time, we've been hearing how climate change is causing direct impacts to our basic human lives. And so we decided like, look, this is something very concerning because, you know, not only for our current generation, like about the future, uh, sorry, about the human rights of people uh, of today, but what about the human rights of children far, far into the future that, of course, we cannot guarantee under the state of climate and negotiation progress that the UNFCCC mechanism and climate change mechanisms is, uh, is, is currently ongoing at the moment. So what can we do as law students? How can we, in our best capacity, utilize our strongest background, which is law, as a vehicle to drive about transformational changes? Of course, we're doing our research, we identify, who have seen that Pacific Island countries for 26 or 30 plus years have been arguing about the issue of climate change, issue of loss and damage, adaptation, mitigation, all, all things that we are now hearing today as buzzwords. We've been talking about this 30 years ago. And how can we really, but what's the, what was the issue? We, decided, we come to realize that there was an impasse. Global, global countries in the global north in particular don't want to budge because if they budge they have to sacrifice a little bit of the economy a little bit of the people's well-being and etc but to us it, it doesn't seem fair first of all we did not cause this problem second of all um the global south makes up a majority of this world's population and the fact that we are the majority of the world's population suffers while one percent or the few remaining people at rome are enjoying their, their lux luxurious life and don't and have to shut the windows curtains when they don't want to see the news or the impacts happening across the world. So what we don't want to go in the petty way, but we just want to say like, if we continue down this trend, there will be no future for all of us, uh, including those people in that 1%. And how can we build not just a green future, but a more equitable future that, you know, even people of color elsewhere in the world, their human rights are truly meaningful, not just it only applies to the color of white. So things like that is an understanding that we really need to, you know, not just addressing the climate change, climate change, but really trying to shift in the ways the world development is heading and the way societies are structured. And as we know, the world is more interconnected. So whatever we do in the global north, global south, we all have to acknowledge that. So to that, we came across the campaign to request uh, United Nations General Assembly um, to seek the guidance of the International Court of Justice, which is the highest court in the world, um, to deliver a statement, to seek clarity, clarify what, it, what are the obligations of states to protect not only the, the current generation, but the future generation from the adverse effect, effects of climate change. To us as law students, we identify that there's a lot of ambiguity and vagueness surrounding that area about um, um, how climate change um, is not perceived that or not utilizing actors in the climate change space, not utilizing enough those um, 
availability of those international mechanisms out there and how there's a lot of ambiguity about state obligation on international law to do more on climate justice. And then because of that ambiguity, there's also gaps in ongoing negotiations such as uh, the Paris Agreements Treaty. If you look at it, there's a lot of gaps in terms of ambition, equity, um, uh, in fairness, those kind of and accountability, the biggest one being the fact that countries come and say, oh, we're just going to do this. We have no pressure. A citizen doesn't care in the first place. We can do whatever we want, postpone it, postpone, 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 and de derail the whole climate change negotiations. How can we fix that? So it starts from the ambiguity to seek that clarity first before we can really encourage state to do more on the climate actions. So we launched the campaign, of course, as students. We thought that um, we are very naive at first. We thought that we would really secure the government's support on the first day. Um, of course, it was very ambitious of us as first, but then we have to swallow the fact that, you know, at least this is the least we can do in a capacity at that time. But we, we really did not, we did not foresaw what would happen after that, where you can see now that the, the entire Pacific government's 18 member states and territories have endorsed the campaign going forward into international spaces. We have uh, more countries from Caribbean, more countries from Africa coming into support and now a culmination of uh, 81 states. I was just in a meeting before I attended this and we have a recent update of how many more states uh, it indicated the support, uh, 95 altogether. So we're having an overwhelming support of countries saying that we too, like you Pacific Islanders, are dissatisfied with the way the progress of climate change is going because and large part of these countries are coming from the global south. I wonder why this large part is from the global south, because of the continuous um, uh, disagreement about how slow the progress is and how far developed nations are not willing to budge, but also the issues about the gross human rights violation because of climate change around the world. It's really shocking, to be honest. Um, the, the most horrifying story I've ever heard in Solomon Islands in particular is that there was a woman who had to who originally go to a well to collect the water for her household, for her family, going out every day to collect the water, carrying that heavy load back to her home, coming back the next day to see that it was it's it's in it's it's um, in, um, contaminated by salt water because of sea level rise. It's like oh okay, the, the logical thing is like we need to find another water source, but having to walk again further inland carrying those buckets and bottles whatever and going inland to get that water gets raped, gets sexually assaulted, and have her, or her rights demeaned. But guess what? She has to go out the next day again because her family depends on her to get that water supply. Things like water tanks. You can see why the water tanks does play a lot of difference in, in these people's lives. And But thinking about those impacts and you know going, going into the future about how this might intensify and more rights get violated, we need to do something about it seriously. And it's starting with from a, a very um, a solution that we haven't yet tapped into. This is the International Court of Justice. So I will, there's a huge amount I can share with you all, but at the end of the day, the campaign is here in New York right now, having the support of 95 states going to be tabled before the United Nations General Assembly to be deliberate, deliberated upon and then going to the International Court of Justice. So the voices of the marginalized, the voices of the unheard can be, truly be heard in these spaces. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, I wish we had another hour. Uh, I, I want to give you sort of as our closing, this is, this is unusual, but I just hear the passion that you both have. And I wanted to give some space to see if you wanted to ask a question to the other. So Solomon, is there a question you particularly would like to ask Salote? Salote, is there a question you'd particularly like to ask Solomon? Um, and then after that, we'll transition into just one or two announcements and then the action. The action is tied to signing this petition and getting it out into our wider congregation network. So we can come back to promoting this at, at the end. But for this segment, the last question, Salote, is there something you'd like to ask Solomon? Solomon, is there something you'd like to ask Salote? And Solomon, I ask you to go first. <laughs> Oh, well, um, that's a lot of questions, uh, Salote, but I can ask her perhaps uh, in the coming weeks, we'll be seeing each other at uh, Boston soon. But the question I would like to ask is that um, 
do you think that um, Pacific Islanders can live with dignity in, the, in, in, our, in our own countries and our communities in the future? That's a really tough question, Solomon. My hope is yes, of course. We want our people to live with dignity. We want our people's rights to be protected and, and respected. Um, it's, it's hard to see a future where we don't meet you know, the Paris Agreement's goals of keeping global temperatures below 1.5 and a dignified, and, and the Pacific Islanders living in dignity. Um, already, you know, most of our support in the Pacific is about just the basic human rights, the basic needs that you and I need to, to live a dignified life, clean drinking water, reliable access where you can go and open the tap and, and feed your son drinking water or base, or just be able to plant healthy foods next to your house because the gardens are too acidic or just to be able to shelter safely from uh, even a category one storm. That's, that's the reality today in the Pacific. Um, and it, it pains me to say this, but I, I, I think most of our people will be displaced, forcibly displaced, um, either by a sudden onset disaster or one of the, the slower you know, impacts, sea level rising, um, because our human rights, our basic human needs are not being met right now. And we will need to seek refuge from our neighbors, um, from countries nearby, from perhaps the United States. We will need to seek the, the, the solidarity, true solidarity of, of our brothers and sisters that live globally in order to, to find a more dignified option. Um, but yeah, that is my hope and that is my prayer every night. I pray every night uh, for my people back home. Uh, my village uh, of Kodoma is, is, is flooded every time there's a king tide. We have had to move our houses inland several times over the past two decades. Our church is almost falling apart and a church in every village in the Pacific is the stronghold of a community. Uh, it provides shelter, it's where we seek spiritual guidance and support, it's where we go and worship and celebrate and mourn just like any other churches around the world. And when that breaks down, the spirit of our community breaks down. And so we are facing a number of, of different issues, but when you talk to my elders, when you talk to my uncles, they will say, we need the church to be rebuilt. And it's not just infrastructural. We know that the deeper meaning of that request is about spiritual solidarity and solitude and, and, and collaboration and, and cooperation and, and the feeling of, of, of being connected to each other. So that is my rather long response to Solomon. Thank you so much for that question. Um, perhaps I can now ask a question to Solomon. Um, I know as a young person, I was not, you know, as wise as you are today. I was probably the one partying and, you know, not paying attention to what the world was doing. Um, but I, I also, I also, feel, you know, there's a, you, you're carrying such a huge burden on your shoulder. And I want to know how you, how do you, do you rest? Um, how do you become, you know, feel young and, and free uh, without carrying that? Yeah, thank you. Thank you to Masalote. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, growing up, I have hopes and dreams and aspirations to be someone that I'm not today. Um, sadly, I think the wrong step I did in my childhood is to spend more time in nature rather than with, um, you know, in school and doing homework and all these things. So, and the people as well in the communities. So I would say, yeah, that was the first mistake because now I go back home and seeing all of these things uh, uh, deteriorating because of climate impacts and seeing how the communities have totally shifted, you know, and also the, the the way of the how they handle resources as well. People are more you know um, uh, more worried about 
themselves and worried about uh, what to feed the next 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 line uh, because back in the day growing up people were very sharing overly sharing saying there's a lot of resources have some have some come here and you'll be walking around the street you don't know these people they say like come come in sit down and eat at a house things like that starting to see it's starting to get rare now i can see of course might be some de development pressures as well but to me it seems that life is getting more harder and harder in the Pacific Islands. Um, seeing that, of course, is a, is a first step that I think that we need to alleviate this, this hard, hardship from these people. And the second is, of course, um, I might not be at some point be hopeful for the future. But like I said in the beginning, it is my obligation for this future generation. Looking at young, young, young kids in the Solomon Islands, looking at young kids in the future, uh, the, the other Pacific Island countries, and of course, uh, niece and nephews around uh, from friends and families, looking at the face and in the innocence is like, look, if these children, we know, we read the IPCC reports, we know what's going to happen. And if these children have to go through all of that, that's, that's a disgrace if we do not do anything about it. So that is, of course, a fuel that continues to get me going, going. <laughs> we, you will laugh at how much we get, we get in terms of sustaining ourselves and doing this campaign and the level of work that we put into this and other people who are involved in this something the campaign it's ridiculous and how much we and the, to be to be blunt we're not doing this for the money money we're really doing this for the people in the pacific and i would get i would say the rest of the world um so uh in in building upon that salote i just want to like to ask you all that this campaign is extremely tough and it's, it's a lot of sacrifice i did this campaign losing my father um, and I did not manage to get to see him as well, but I, I see that it's a bigger cause and a bigger calling in my life. And I'm sure a lot of our friends and families were taking taking part on this uh, this campaign and journey as well are doing the same. So I just only kindly ask you all if you can think of us in your thoughts and your prayers, and hoping that you can give us uh, seeking us to give us more strength to continue this great campaign until we reach our objectives. So yes, it's just a kind request to all of you. That's the least I, I believe anyone could do for people who are, who are doing this campaign on the front lines. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I um, We're going to close in a moment with links and information about how to get more involved in this campaign. I just want to name so much holy was, was shared in this conversation just in this last 40 minutes, just conveyed so many stories, so many stories of people were brought into this space. And I just ask us to hold that close and to carry the love that is behind each one of those stories and each one of those people as we, as we go forward and we talk about this, whether we're here right now, whether we're watching it as a recording later, these are real people that have been invited into our time together and we can carry these stories into our own communities. Um, I wanna thank both of you we're going to invite Ember for a moment to just talk a little bit about some announcements for upcoming information. Then we'll loop back to, to close with prayer and also uh, some ways to get involved with the Pacific Island campaign. Um, really, truly thank you to both of you. And now, Ember. Thank you, Daniel. When Daniel and I met this morning to run through some last minute preparations, we, uh, we talked about how we often learn a lot in our time uh, leading these sorts of things. And I am definitely coming away from tonight feeling, feeling changed. Um, so it's been a very powerful time together. So thank you from me as well. Um, so we have a couple uh, just volunteer and opportunities going on uh, that we just wanted to bring up. So one of our partners in our collaboration is New York UU Justice. Uh, if you are coming from other parts of the country, uh, I know the, uh, the information about this event was spread far and wide. And so if you're coming from other parts, there are uh, other uh, UU local state legislative ministries. You can see the link here at the bottom, uh, cuusan.org. You can head there to find one that isn't local to you. Uh, but it's a great way to get involved with some broader collaboratory justice work that's happening. Um, save the date for our next panel on November 1st. We're going to be talking about how congregations can respond uh, and care for communities uh, in this time of intense uh, pressure uh, and in time of global extreme weather. How do, we, how do we 
provide care um, as people and as congregations uh, and as a denomination? How do we how do we do this uh, in these challenging times? Um, and that is November 1st, uh, and that will be at 7 p.m. Eastern as well on Zoom. Uh, so we will uh, be sending out information to those that came to this event uh, for registration for that event as well. And then finally, if you are in New York City on behalf of Fourth Universalist Society, uh, we do have coming up this Sunday, uh, we are working partnering with Green Faith, uh, which is an organization that looks at this intersection of uh, faith and environmental change. Uh, and they are hosting a picnic in collaboration with us this Sunday. Uh, it'll be taking place in Central Park, uh, and that'll be October 9th at 1 p.m. So if you meet maybe at Fourth Universalist a little bit before 1 p.m., then we can uh, go over together. And then that is also then connected to a protest that is happening a Wednesday, I believe October 19th um, at 8.30 a.m. If you're interested in participating in either of those things, if you're in the New York City area, can reach out to our senior minister at Fourth Universalist, Reverend Schuyler Vogel, uh, and you can see his email address at the bottom there as well, Reverend Schuyler at fourthu.org. And so uh, I will turn back to Daniel. Daniel, do you need me to keep the screen up for you? Um, you, you can, if you'd like. I just included the link, um, and I will I will actually invite Solomon to to just speak on this briefly, but really our question, this, this video is being watched by members of congregations all over the country. It will be shared with our listserv of over 9,000 UUs across the country, and we're promoting it through the New York Unitarian Universalist Justice Network. So if I'm someone who's watching this, maybe I'm on the social justice committee at my congregation, maybe I'm a minister, how can my community support this work, either through UU service committee, Salote, or through um, the campaign? What are ways that our local communities can get involved in this work? And uh, Salote, then Solomon. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Reverend Daniel. There's, um, we, you know, we support uh, the Pacific Islands in response to climate change. We have been, uh, we have a petition um, on our website uh, so that you can um, you know fill out to reach out to your own congressional representatives um, to send the message across. Um, we, we occasionally bring put out um, e-actions um, because you know this is part of the whole um, sort of a, a broad suite of demands that we are asking of our federal government um, to fulfill their duty of care. Um, and so um, we will, you know, I'll be sure to, to send any materials or any actions over to you, Reverend Daniel, um, and we'd love your support. And Solomon, how could, how could our congregations get involved in this work? Thank you, uh, Reverend Daniel. Of course, um, uh, we all understand how petitions work, right? Um, at the moment, we have developed a petition calling for world UN global world leaders. Um, to support this, because uh, at some point, the Vanuatu government, alongside with the governments of the Pacific and France, will table the resolution at the United Nations. In order to get it to the International Court of Justice, there needs to be a simple majority vote of UN member states. So every country around the world will have an opportunity to vote yes or no, or abstain from voting at the UN. So it, in, this is an invitation from civil society and people who are working on the campaign really to galvanize more support with uh, the public to say that we too want our governments to support this. Hence, we created, created this uh, petition. This petition, of course, will be utilized to influence specific governments or governments in general to show, show that there's a sheer number of civil society in support of this and be ordinary citizens to do this. Um, of course, when the time comes, um, we will have more greater call to action. So I hope that I can share it with Salote or uh, Reverend Daniel that you can circulate around so you can see how other ways that you can support this campaign more meaningfully going forward as we near our dates. Yeah. Thank you so much. If you can sign the petition, it was much appreciated to a small campaign that we, we're working on since 2019. Thank you. Ember. And um, what we'll do just as our closing, I offer these words as prayer, which is adapted from Reverend Nancy McDonald Ladd, 
who is in our tradition. Spirit of life and rainbow, bigger than the universe, smaller than a grain of sand. Help us to remember that though we have fallen short, we are connected to you and to one another. And by a redeeming mutuality that heals and demands and that gives comfort amid the holy agitation of our days. Great Spirit, help us to see one another, to really see one another's pressing hurt and uplifting joy, profound pain and unexpected uplift. May we be present with the joys and sorrows that are the tool of every transformation. And together, wherever we find ourselves, may now we be both knowing and known, seen and believed, companions on the journey, created, imperfect, and committed. May we carry forward with hope and bring that hope to one another. May it be so. Amen. Um,